Hi friends, welcome back to You Are Not Broken podcast. Are you guys ready for more menopause and hormones and discussion with Dr. Heather Hirsch? She is so engaging. I loved hearing uh, her last week and here we are with part two of two, jumping back into knowing everything you can about menopause so you know how to be your best advocate or somebody who loves best advocate because we all want to live past 50, right? All right, here we go, Dr. Heather Hirsch. And please remember, to follow my podcast and give it a ranking so people can learn more about this. That's how we make it visual. Uh, and we tell Spotify and we tell Apple that this is a podcast that is worth listening to. And also come on my website, Kelly Casperson MD, where you can sign up for my newsletter because that's where I'm going to announce the webinars to do some live podcast recording, question and answer, intimacy coaching. It's going to be a blast. I'm going to start that in March. So come on over, join me. All right. I love you so much. Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. Average age of menopause in America is 51, and we know perimenopause is kind of the slow decline uh, to the menopause hormone levels. So when do people start? Because I see people, then they're years beyond the menopause, and they're really feeling the effects. Should we be moving the, the pendulum on them? Yeah. So certainly we know the, the the safety profile of taking hormone therapy is the most beneficial within 10 years of menopause. And probably, it's not maybe a stretch to say, but probably the closer, the better. I have some patients who actually start postmenopausal doses in perimenopause, particularly late perimenopause, because they're having so many menopausal symptoms while they're still having a few periods and they're not textbook menopause. And, and certainly, uh, we do like to try and get our patients on hormone therapy within that window. And the reason being is that we think that estrogen is uh, much more beneficial when your body has just you know had 50 years of seeing estrogen. And then we give you a tiny dose and postmenopausal doses and your endothelium, your little blood vessels, they're, they're kind of happy to see estrogen. But if it's been one or two decades that have gone by where your body's seen estrogen, when we reintroduce it, it might be pro-inflammatory at that point. And so that's really where the risk of uh, cardiovascular events comes into play. And that's that physiology of why. That's that anatomy reason of why. Because estrogen, when your body hasn't seen it in a while, might be more pro-inflammatory. But to nail your point, uh, really, uh, you know, I'll see patients who say, come to my office, they're in their mid-60s, and they say, look, Dr. Hirsch, I'm, I am so miserable. I have hourly hot flashes since I turned 50, and so many people have told me there is nothing that, that I could do. And that's just so unfortunate. Now, it's not that you cannot by any means take hormone therapy. After 10 years, I get that question all the time, like, oh, you know, I'm watching the clock. I've got six days left. <laughs> it, it's not that simple. It's certainly just a different set of risks and benefits. And it's a different a conversation uh, about a quality of life and what risks you will and will not accept. But certainly the choice can be made much easier if you are sooner into your menopausal transition. So yes, if we can get that pendulum to move early, if we can get those healthcare providers to either talk to their patients or get them to an expert sooner, then we've, then we've done our job, Kelly. Awesome. So is it, can we get black and white on who's not a candidate for hormone replacement? Like, yes. is there a hard stop on some people? 
is a hard stop. And that is any history of an unprovoked blood clot. So say you're sitting and watching TV and you develop a blood clot. That's what unprovoked means. It's a little different than what we consider a provoked blood clot. Say you're in a huge car accident and you had a blood clot. That can be seen a little different, especially by an expert. But a history of an unprovoked blood clot or a pulmonary uh, embolism, which means a lung clot, those are both hard stops for not using or having a contraindication to estrogen. Another one, of course, is an active history of breast cancer and similarly um, a history of breast cancer. I'm just going to exclude, there are, I do have very, very few patients with DCIS or other very early breast cancers. And that is another set of, of uh, is, a, is another set of uh, conversation, uh, risks and benefits in a talk with an oncologist. But certainly a history of breast cancer or active breast cancer is another thing. Uh, any undiagnosed uh, vaginal bleeding with no known etiology needs to be worked up. We want to make sure you don't have uh, a uterine precancer or a uterine cancer. So any postmenopausal bleeding should be evaluated first before taking hormone therapy. Those are kind of like obvious stops um, where you know it's, it's might not be an, an effective or might not fit with your past medical history. What about what about just obesity? So obesity in and of itself is not a risk, is not a hard stop. Um, certainly uh, someone who is overweight or obese um, may have some other chronic conditions. So it's important for me as the clinical expert to look through their chart or to diagnose and examine what other, if any, metabolic uh, syndrome coexisting conditions might they have. Do they have diabetes or prediabetes? Do they have dyslipidemia? Do they have hypertension? <laughs> Sorry, brain fog for a second. Uh, is there any signs of fatty liver? And is there any other conditions that could be mimicking their symptoms? For example, do they have sleep apnea or obstructive sleep apnea? So that's when it is up to me to really make sure I know their medical history really well, just since obesity is a risk factor for other things. And then I'm going to kind of figure out what, if any, treatment could they use. For obese patients, who do have um, coexisting metabolic issues, sometimes that's when it's best to use a transdermal estrogen preparation if they qualify, meaning a FDA-approved patch or gel of estradiol because that will avoid first-pass metabolism, a fancy way of saying it doesn't go through the liver and it can be a little bit easier for my obese patients with other chronic conditions. What about if you have a sister or a mom who has a history of breast cancer? Are you at an increased risk if you take estrogen? Because I see that all the time. People are just very fearful. And I don't know the data on that one. This is a great, great question. So we know, and um, there's a great book out called Breast, the Owner's Manual. And if you want, you could, you could link it. It's such a great book. And one of the things that we know about breast cancer is that the majority of breast cancer is found in women with no other fam close family member. And there's a smaller percentage of breast cancers that are genetic. So certainly everyone may have heard of BRCA. And uh, that's another very common common genetic uh, predisposition for breast cancer. But a patient who has a mother or a sister with breast cancer does not necessarily mean that their risk is substantially increased. 
What I do with my patients who do have a family member is make sure I do a thorough family history and go back and make sure, you know, how many family members are involved. Is it you know, distant relatives, or is it several first-degree relatives? And then consider if maybe it's worth a genetic counseling visit. There are some other fancy ways of calculating someone's risk score for breast cancer, but it is so complex because, again, we're talking about incidence versus mortality, right? That's the same topic we talked about maybe just 20 minutes ago. Then I find that some of my patients have either psychological blocks or or they don't. And if they have a psychological block, then that's something that we have to deal with. Because certainly if you've seen a family member go through breast cancer, even if it was an early stage, but it was just emotional and traumatic, that's going to imprint on you. And it is never my intention for women to think that they have just one option, which is hormonal. I certainly can go over non-hormonal options with with all my patients who simply won't accept the risks, even though we've talked about them and they're overall fairly low if you're early at menopause. There's another trick or not trick, but there's another medication I sometimes use in this situation. It's called Duave. And Duave is a combination of two medications, conjugated equine estrogen and basidoxaphene. The basidoxaphene acts as the progesterone component, but it's a cousin to a medication many of you may have heard of called tamoxifen. Both basidoxaphene and tamoxifen are SERMs. That means they act like estrogen in some tissue, like in our brain to stop those hot flashes. But unlike estrogen, where we don't want them, like at the level of the breast. So Duave is a really nice option if someone has a family history of breast cancer and is on the fence, but sort of wants to do everything they can to be safe. Duave is not just for um, patients who have family members with breast cancer. It's a great medication to use anyway. Uh, but I find that that basidoxaphene portion really is a nice added insurance policy or buffer as well. So a lot of it depends on how many family members, what their lifestyle is, their past history, and their psychological standing, how much the risk they're willing to take. And I also, same as I have some patients who are not willing to accept those risks. I have some patients that say, that's fine. I can't live like this anymore. Let's go back. Let's go back to the the non-hormonal for a bit. Let's talk about lifestyle things that we can do to kind of ease the transition to menopause lifestyle and then maybe supplements. Yes. Okay. So certainly a lot of the lifestyle things are no brainers. Dressing in layers, uh, handheld fans. Uh, There are many uh, products that you can get simply on Amazon that are wonderful, including some uh, handheld fans that kind of fold up or slip in your purse. There's cooling sheets, there's cooling blankets, there's cooling clothes, there's cooling pajamas. Um, Those things are really, can be a really nice little buff In terms of supplements, a lot of patients will take over the counter, uh, either estrogen is really popular or uh, menopausal support. And what those supplements are is um, a teeny, teeny, easy, wincy, minuscule amount of estrogen that is so low it's not a prescription strength. And for those of you who are really nerds like Kelly and I, there's the body makes three types of estrogens, estradiol, which is about 95%, which is what's in the prescription, and then esterol and esterone, which make up the other 5%, which are typically are in the over-the-counters. And those are deemed really, really safe. And for a lot of women, they do tend to work or they have a placebo effect, which 
still works. Still works. Um, <laughs> black cohosh also can help and is deemed fairly safe. It often is, um, again, may have a big placebo effect. So you'll notice a placebo effect if these work for about a couple of months and they all of a sudden stop working. Perfect. Other things that can really help, you know, with sleep are magnesium. I, I really recommend magnesium at bedtime. B complex vitamins are great for energy. Biotin, zinc, uh, iron are really good for hair, skin, and nails. A lot of things that other women really report. And then B6 is great for um, helping with relief of like gentle bloating or fluid retention, which a lot of women really get some relief from those. Awesome. Is there data? I hear a lot about um, low carb diets or keto diets to help prevent the weight gain and the menopause transition. Is there data specifically looking at menopause with that? So great question. Not that I'm currently aware of. And I have to tell you that this topic almost always comes up and I tread very lightly. And that's because it's another one of those areas that is swinging, that just swings so fast you cannot keep up. I I have a great podcast episode on this topic that I did with a fitness and nutritionist. And really what I find does tend to work the best is to reduce calories um, and not drastically, not so much that you are starving. But I do think that if you can create a little bit of a calorie deficit, whether that's through low carb or whether that's through intermittent fasting or whether that's if you're vegan, it doesn't matter. But if you can create a little bit of a calorie deficit, And I honestly think doing some weight-bearing activity, I do think that's going to be the best bet overall. But as to which specific diet is the best, I really think in all honesty that it's whatever works for you because your neighbor might swear that when she went vegan, that helped her drop the weight, that dropped the bloating, but that just might not work for you. And if intermittent fasting works for you, Fine. If it doesn't, you know, I don't think that you have to stick just like with anything. I don't think that one size fits all, particularly for women. Let's talk about, let's go back to hormones for a second. So I see a lot of women, they're happily on hormones. You know, anecdotally, they'll be like, you can pry these hormones out of my cold dead hands. They just love how they (laughs) feel on them. And these are usually, Uh these are usually women in their seventies. So they've been on them for a while. And so I had a lady who was seven, like early seventies and her provider just pulled her off of her hormones because she said, yep, it's been long enough. So now she's going through a really horrible menopause and hot flashes at, in her early seventies. Do we have data to say we should just pull people off at some point? Or if you're doing well, it's a, just a continued conversation about risks and benefits and, and how you're feeling. Exactly. I see this all the time. And it's a huge reason that people come for a consultation for me. I mean, almost once a clinic, someone comes because they were happily on their medications. And then because of a birthday, they got ripped off of them. So it used to be the mantra was the shortest dose for the shortest amount of time. And that was really when the WHI came out and there was still plenty of fears. I believe that this idea of age being important comes from the WHI. And remember, we talked about how when you start in your 60s or 70s, estrogen is pro-inflammatory. But the key word is when you start it then. So it is not the same thing as someone who may uh, started their Premarin at age 50 and is now age 70. And she's been on that very low dose for 20 years. Her body's so used to that the biggest risk for a blood clot is in the first six months. Well, she's been on it for nearly 19 and a half more years. And there isn't, it's not that her incidence of blood clot accumulates each year. 
It doesn't. There's actually data to show that the risk of a stroke or cardiovascular incident increases the year that women are taken off their hormones because that's the big physiologic shift at 70, right? Mm -hmm. So I always say to my patients that they have decisions, that they have autonomy and they can say, Dr. Hirsch, never take this from my cold, dead hands. And you know what? We won't. And we will try to decrease the effective dose if we can. And every year we'll see if you've developed any other chronic diseases or any other complications, see if we need to change it to a transdermal, et cetera. And we'll keep having a shared talk about it. And I also have patients on the other hand who say, Dr. Hirsch, I only want to be on this medication for as little years as possible. And that's okay too. And we wean them off and they decide then if their symptoms return, they might want to go back on it. If they don't, then, you know, I just also say, okay, you know, let's just think about your bones and your vaginal health and all these other things now that your estrogen's off and just make sure they stay nice and healthy. So to answer your question, there is no longer any time limit. And both uh, NAMS, the North American Menopause Society, which I'm a part of, and ACOG, the American College of OBGYNs, say you do not have to simply stop because you turn age 60 or 65. I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, I think the, you know, the plug, I'm going to plug estrogen on the vagina again, because <laughs> I'm like, people need to know this is I see a lot of women saying, I don't need to be on vaginal estrogen because I'm not sexually active. And I mm-hmm. love to break down the barrier of like, this is not about your partner. Like, this is not something you're doing for somebody else, right? This is something you're doing for you. And vaginal estrogen will decrease overactive bladder, urinary tract infections, pain, dryness, and it'll help with sexual function. But so many women, I think they give their power away of saying, well, I'm not with somebody, so I don't need vaginal estrogen. And to me, I'm like, that's a huge myth that I got to I gotta work on. I always say I, I wouldn't have prescribed vaginal estrogen to nuns, right? It's not about sexual activity Really, it, it can be, but it's it's certainly not the only thing. I think that when everyone has, when everyone turns menopausal, they should receive vaginal estrogen. Just I agree I'm with you. Totally, I agree. And we're we're clinicians, and we see this all the time. It's so important, you know. Our our genitourinary tissue, our, our our pelvis, essentially functions really well with estrogen. And I have to say that I think in the cave days, we died at childbirth or long before menopause, and I. I wonder, <laughs> were our bodies supposed to have estrogen around for the majority of our lives? And have we simply outlived that? And again, genitourinary syndrome and menopause, which we haven't touched upon terribly much. We've really been talking a lot about uh, systemic uh, hormones and menopause. But GSM is something that, unlike hot flashes, does not get better with time. I always say on my patients, and you probably say the same thing, that your vagina goes through reverse puberty. And it becomes thin and it becomes pale and it can bleed. And the same kinds of things in the tissues or the same types of physiology happens to the surrounding tissues, the bladder, the ureters, the labias, the perineum in general. And it's not that we all of a sudden don't use our pelvis anymore. It's not that we just use it for sex, right? So I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think just like uh, companies, uh, this is probably a poor... (laughs) metaphor. But just like companies start sending you infant formula when they find out you signed up for some type of pregnancy email list, I think we should send women samples of vaginal estrogen. Totally. We need to get it with AARP because they seem to like uh-huh. know people's birthdays and send them mailers. <laughs> they seem to touch all of America. Okay. Any one of you proactive listeners out there who wants to take this on, you know, me and Kelly are right there with you. I think, I think vaginal estrogen should be over the counter. And it's what a great idea. Safe. So safe. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. There is plenty of data um, and long-term meta-analyses. And a great one that came out in 2019 showing that there is no, really no increased risk of breast cancer and no, impar- no apparent increased risk of recurrence of breast cancer. So I actually have plenty of breast cancer survivors who do use uh, vaginal estrogen. Um, and uh, again, that's a, se- a separate population than what we're talking about. We're talking about the general population. And I think we half kid about the AARP, but I do, um, I really want to highlight that idea. You know, we put birth control pills over the counter, right? In some places. Um, and plan B, uh, without a prescription, you can get. And arguably, arguably, easily, vaginal estrogen's safer to be taken without a prescription, uh, without a physician overseeing you than those other two. So, so very interesting and lots of food for thought. So I hope that we have really helped your listeners to uh, grasp not only the safety and efficacy of systemic hormones, but really to uh, the safety of vaginal estrogens. And I, I, I'm, I know you have other episodes uh, talking about this. So I just want to reaffirm that for your listeners. I love it. But one more thing before we wrap up, we have not talked about testosterone. So testosterone is not FDA approved for women in this country. And there are other countries that have a lot more experience with women on testosterone. And and when we're talking about testosterone, we're talking about getting a woman back to kind of pre-menopause testosterone levels. I think what a lot of people don't know is that women have testosterone, our ovaries make it and our adrenal glands make it. And as estrogen and progesterone go down with menopause, so does testosterone. Where are you in your practice? How many women do you do you bring testosterone into the picture with? So I'll tell you kind of how I run things in the testosterone front. So certainly we run into problems because it has to be compounded. For my younger patients, anyone who has had premature ovarian insufficiency or surgical menopause before age 40 or even in their early 40s, certainly I actually always bring up the conversation of testosterone because they lose so much of their libido and their sexual function at such an early age. Now, let's you know talk more about my natural menopausal patients and the role of testosterone there. Certainly, it can help the majority of its... Uh, Positive effects are going to be around in, in the libido area, arousal, desire, etc. Now, how I usually run my clinic, and not always, but I would say one of the things I actually like to do with my patients is if they are going to start on an estrogen therapy and a progesterone, if they have an intact uterus, I actually have them do that first. And I have them do that, and then usually my patients come back to see me in you know two or three months, and that alone might help their libido because they might say, "Well, I can sleep now." And I don't want to bite my husband's head off. And so I'm feeling good. <laughs> and my vagina is better, et cetera. And so sometimes that just kind of naturally dissects out who would be, who would be, who would benefit from testosterone. If they come back to me, they say, okay, I feel great. I'm not flashing. I'm sleeping or whatever, whatever, but I just still have no desire, but I miss that part. And I want my husband to know that I love him. We'll talk about what the options are for desire. And women have very limited options. There's two FDA approved options, which are non-hormonal. And then of course there's testosterone. If they choose the testosterone, I do uh, write for a compounded testosterone cream at a very low super uh, therapeutic physiologic dose for women. I check their testosterone before it's it's almost never high um, because they're menopausal. And I check it again when they come back to see me and I make sure it is never above what is the threshold for normal. And if it helps them, 
great and they stay on it. If it doesn't, then there's no need to continue it. It might be an underlying psychological issue. And then of course, too, if we want to make sure that patients don't have pain, I could pump my patients with as much testosterone as they could handle. But if it's painful, then they're going to have no reason to engage in that. So you kind of want to look at it from a couple of angles. So to summarize, I usually start with estrogen and progesterone if they need it, see then how they feel about their libido and then potentially add testosterone. Um, And that's how I do that. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else you want to empower women with, with knowledge or myth busting before we head out? Oh, you know, there's so many that I I know I have a tendency to over talk, but the last thing I want your listeners to know, wow, we've been talking for a while, Kelly, <laughs> is that they are not alone and that each one of your listeners can make a big difference by talking about this, whether it's to their friends or family members or with their physicians and challenge your physicians that if they don't know the answers to these and you, you've you heard Kelly and I talk or you've listened to these podcasts or you've read these other books, challenge your physicians because your physicians will then go and ask for more CME or education and ask to see an expert. There's lots of ways to see an expert and I definitely recommend um, the NAMS uh, uh, website, which is menopause.org. And you can find a provider by typing in your zip code. So you are not alone. And there is certainly several, several options for you. One of the myths I hate is when people come to me and they say, I was always told there was nothing that could be done. All the time. Yeah. I always think that too. Like, you know, as a urologist, I get people with pain with sex and like, we just start with lube and then they're like, lube's amazing. (laughs) And I'm like, how'd you have to get to a surgeon to learn lube with for sex? (laughs) But yeah, it's it's universal. It's like, unless you start seeking out answers, you know, a lot of people don't know how to help. So keep, keep asking and menopause lasts a long time, right? So it's, don't give up if one person tells you, tells you something, you can always get a second opinion. Agree. I agree. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I loved getting a chance to get in your listeners' ears and they're so lucky to have a fantastic host like you. Oh, thank you.